If you have a Bible, again, take it out. Jeremiah chapter 1 is our passage. We're going to walk through verse 4 to 10 this morning, so you want to have a copy of the Scriptures close by. There is an outline in the bulletin. You can track along with some of the things that we're going to talk about. This is week 2 in the book of Jeremiah, and essentially this morning we're going to pick up exactly where we left off last week talking about the word of the Lord. Jeremiah's book begins with a clear emphasis on the word of the Lord. I told you last week that that phrase, the word of the Lord, shows up 349 times in the Old Testament. 349. 157 of them, the vast largest part of them, show up in the book of Jeremiah. The word of the Lord. He talks about the word of the Lord in verse 2 and verse 4 and verse 9, 11, 13, 17. He just keeps coming back to it over and over and over again in this opening section to remind you and me, the reader of this book, that the things he spoke were not just his thoughts and his ruminations and his ideas and his daydreams, but these things that he spoke, these things that are written down were actually God's words. Now, last week, we looked at verse 1, 2, and 3. That was sort of basic introduction to the whole book of Jeremiah. This morning, we're looking at verse 4 to 10. 4 to 10 is really part of a section that you might say goes from 4 to 19, and it's a part of the book that's usually described as Jeremiah's, quote, call to prophetic ministry. God is calling Jeremiah to do something specific, specifically to be a prophet in Judah. Now, it's interesting to think about, and it's really important to understand what stage of life Jeremiah was in when this call came crashing into his life. And that's exactly what happened. This call from God just came ramrodding right into Jeremiah's life. There's a word in verse 7. Sometimes it's translated youth. Sometimes in the Bible it's translated child, but typically what we're talking about is someone in their late teenage years. It's a word with a pretty wide semantic range, and you look at the context and you try to determine what it specifically means. Sometimes it means very, very little children. Sometimes it means older children or even young adults, but most scholars seem to think when they piece together the details of Jeremiah's life and they think about this word that God is calling him when he's somewhere in the range of, let's say, 15 to 20. He's not a child per se, and he's not really at that true adult stage, but he's somewhere in those late teenage years. Here's the big idea of our passage. The big idea of our passage, super important, is that God is sovereign. He is sovereign. He is the sovereign. He's the king. He's the ruler over all things. He's in control of all things. And there's two examples given in this passage of God's sovereignty. Number one, there's a micro example, a small example, and that is an individual's life, namely Jeremiah. Then there's a macro example, and the macro example is the nations and the kingdoms of this earth. God is sovereign over all of that, the small things in individual life and the big things, nations and kingdoms. Our emphasis this morning will fall on Jeremiah's life, and in the weeks ahead, we'll talk more in depth about God's sovereignty over the nations, but we're going to talk about both of these things this morning. 
when it comes to theology, what it is that you believe about God, what it is that you believe about spiritual things and the Bible and heaven and hell and salvation, there are really three foundational doctrinal truths that will have an outsized impact on all the other things that you believe about God. I was reminded of this reality this week in conversations with church members and in different conversations with former church members. There are some basic things, basic doctrinal truths that will shape all the other things that you believe under the big umbrella of theology. One of those things is what do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about this book? If you believe, as we have been teaching on Wednesday nights recently, that this book is inspired by Almighty God, that the contents of this book are without error, it is an inerrant revelation from God, if you believe that, that will have a tremendous impact. It will shape the way that you think about dozens and dozens and dozens of other doctrinal concepts. Another thing that will be influential is what do you believe about human beings? Do you believe the Bible when it says that human beings are fallen, that we're sinful, that our hearts are wicked and twisted and that we've rebelled against God and that we stand under God's guilt and under his judgment? Some of the conversations I had this week just go, go back to a basic misunderstanding about what our condition is as sinful people apart from God's grace. So what do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about human beings? And then lastly to that list, I would add, do you believe that God, the one true God, is absolutely holy and completely and totally sovereign? Do you believe the Bible when it says that there is only one God and there is no one else in the entire universe like him? He is holy and unique. And do you believe the Bible when it says that his sovereignty extends over all that he has created? The way that you answer those questions, what do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about human sinfulness? What do you believe about God in the essential attributes of his nature and his character? That will determine all the other things that you believe about life and God and eternity and heaven and hell and salvation. And this morning our focus is on God, thinking specifically about the sovereignty of God. We'll start with this micro example of Jeremiah, the sovereignty of God in Jeremiah's life. Very simple, God was sovereign over Jeremiah's past, God was sovereign over Jeremiah's present, and God is sovereign over Jeremiah's future. All of these things expressed in our passage this morning. God's sovereignty over every single moment of Jeremiah's existence, all the way back to the past, even in the present, and moving forward into the future. Here's what I want to do. I want to walk through this passage starting in verse 4 and 5 and 6. And I just want you to see a few truths. I want you to see a few words that emphasize the sovereignty of God in Jeremiah's life. So look, if you will, at verse 4. That's where we started reading this morning. Jeremiah 1, 4, it says, The word of the Lord came to me. God's word came to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was not the one out searching for God's word. God's words sovereignly came crashing into his life. God's word came to Jeremiah. God took the initiative in that, 
not Jeremiah. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, we read that the Lord God formed Jeremiah even in the womb. He formed him in the womb. It's the same word that you'll find in the book of Genesis chapter 2 when it says the Lord God formed the man. It's the same word you'll find in Psalm 139 when David says you formed me in my mother's womb and you knitted me together. Formed my inward parts. It's the same word. It's a word that is grammatically connected to the word potter, meaning someone who takes a lump of clay and fashions it and shapes it and forms it into what he or she wants it to be. That's what the text is saying about God and his relationship with Jeremiah. He formed him, he molded him, he shaped him even in the womb. Verse 5 also says that the Lord God knew Jeremiah even before he formed him. That's backward from what we would expect. We would expect God to say, first I formed you, and from the moment that I formed you and you existed, then I knew you. That's not what God says. God says, I formed you, but I knew you even before I formed you. That word know, you'll find it in the book of Genesis. Adam knew his wife. It's not just saying he knew about her. He knew her locations or her whereabouts. It's saying they had a relationship together. There was an intimacy there. It's the same word you'll find in the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 2. God says to his people, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Surely we would say from many other Bible passages that God knows all the peoples of the earth. He knows everyone. He knows the hair of every head. He knows when the sparrow falls. He is aware of and he has knowledge of all the peoples. But Amos is making a point more than just knowledge. He's talking about relationship. That's the idea that this word communicates. When he says to Jeremiah, I knew you before I formed you, Eugene Peterson sums it up nicely in making sense of this for us. Before Jeremiah knew God, God knew Jeremiah. God takes the initiative. He is sovereign over all things, including the lives of his people. Look at verse 5. There's the word consecrated. Consecrated. That's a fancy Bible word. All it means is that God set Jeremiah apart. He did it before he was born. He consecrated him and set him apart for a specific job before he was born. You read that and you say, but when was the job fair? What was the application process like for Jeremiah to apply for the job of prophet? When did the guidance counselor give Jeremiah the advice that, hey, maybe you should take up prophecy? Right? When did the corporate headhunter show up and say, hey, Jeremiah, we saw your LinkedIn account. we really like to visit with you about being a prophet. None of those things happened. God was sovereign in setting this man apart before he was born for a specific job. And look in verse 5 at the word appointed. Appointed. You could literally translate that word gave. He gave Jeremiah. This is what's fascinating. If you read the original language, it does not say that God gave Jeremiah a job. What it literally says is he gave Jeremiah to a job. It wasn't the job that was given. It was Jeremiah that was given. God had a job 
and he gave Jeremiah to that job. Now look, modern people, especially Americans, read all of this and we start to think, how could God make all these decisions for Jeremiah without consulting Jeremiah? Shouldn't he have been brought in on the process? I mean, this is pretty major life-altering stuff. Shouldn't the Lord God have consulted and gotten some feedback from Jeremiah about these things? The point the passage is trying to make to you is there is one God, and it wasn't Jeremiah, and it's not you or me. He's holy. He's one of a kind. He's unique. And he's absolutely sovereign over all things. You and I are not sovereign. He is sovereign. There's some stuff in life that you get to make a decision about. Moms, you get to pick lunch today. Some of you have that decision coming up. Are you going to pick Texas burger or roses? You have a decision to make. Maybe you're going to upscale and you're going to say, no, dos compadres or labadego or I don't know what you're going to pick, but you have a, a choice to make. There's things in life you get to choose. You know as well as I know there's other things in life you don't get to choose. No one asked me, would you like to have hair when you're 39 years old? They passed the form out in fifth grade. I was absent that day. I didn't get to vote. I didn't get to say, yes, sign me up for hair when I'm 39. Nobody asked me. Didn't get a, didn't get a pick. Didn't get a, a vote. Didn't, didn't get any input. Uh, look around the room. I don't know where all of you were born, but I think a lot of you were probably born in the United States of America. Not all of you, but a lot of you. You didn't pick that. No one asked you, where would you like to be born? Would you like to be born in the United States or would you like to be born in South Sudan in the middle of a civil war? You hit the geographic jackpot in being born where you are in many, many ways. But you, you didn't have any input on that. The Bible actually says in the book of Acts that it's the Lord God who determines where and when people are born on the face of the earth. He's sovereign over that. I'm not, you're not, governments aren't, God is. He's the sovereign one. Now, if all that makes you uneasy, you're in good biblical company because it made Jeremiah uneasy. Look what he said in verse 6. I think verse 6 proves that Jeremiah was a teenager. The first uttered noise out of his mouth was a sigh. Ah. He groaned at the Lord, very teenager-like, right? He's only a youth. Oh. If you have a, a newfangled Bible translation, maybe out in the margin it has an eye roll emoji out there to just tell you. He sighed and he rolled his eyes and he threw his head. Oh. Lord, God. Look what he says. He has two objections. This is in verse 6. Behold, I don't know how to speak. You want me to go be a prophet? I'm not very good at talking, so I don't like this plan. Number two, I'm only a youth. I'm not old enough. I know what prophets do. They go and they talk to kings, and they rebuke the priests, and they tell people to straighten up, and I'm just a youth, and I don't like this plan. So he, he has objections to God's sovereignty in his life. What are your objections to doing the things that God may have called you to do? Is it like Jeremiah and you say, God, I know you've called me to do this. I, I'm just not very good at that, God. Is it, God, I'm too young to do that? Or maybe for some of you, won't point names or fingers or 
ask you to raise your hand. Maybe it's I'm too old, right? Moses was a prophet who objected to the Lord's call on his life. He was almost 80 years old. Jeremiah is a youth. He's probably a late teenager. People object to God's call on their life all the time. I'm too young. I'm too old, too inexperienced. I haven't been trained. I'm not very good at that. Maybe it's just I don't want to do it. I'm not interested in that. Jeremiah had objections to God's call on his life, and they sound pretty pitiful in hindsight. He's talking to the sovereign Lord whose word came to him, who formed him, who knew him, who consecrated him, who gave him to this task. And his objection is, I I can't do it and I'd rather not do it. Our objections sound just as pitiful. Notice God's response, verse 7. The Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth. In other words, that has now been brought into the conversation between you and me that you're only a youth. Don't say that again, Jeremiah. That is no longer going to be a point of discussion. Don't say it. And then he says to Jeremiah, how do you like this? He says, Jeremiah, to all to whom I send you, you will go. If I tell you to go talk to those people, you're going to go talk to them. And then he says, Jeremiah, whatever I command you, you will speak. You will say whatever I tell you to say. It's the sovereignty of God over Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah didn't like it in the moment. He didn't like it every day going forward. In fact, there's a time in Jeremiah's life, you get to about Jeremiah chapter 20, he makes the decision, I'm done. I've had enough. These people don't like me. They're not listening to me. They're not repenting. This is costing me to speak God's word. And he makes the decision, I'm done. And then he says this almost immediately after he makes the decision. If I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in and I can't. I can't. I can't hold it in. Because God has called me to do this thing and it is burning in my bones and as tired as I am of doing it, I have to keep doing it. This is the sovereignty of God in Jeremiah's life. Look what God says in verse 8. He tells Jeremiah, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It is the most common, most often repeated command in the entire Bible. Do not be afraid. Why would that be the most often repeated command in the entire Bible? Probably because we're scared people. Probably because we are prone to forget that we know almighty, sovereign God who can do anything at any time. Probably because we forget as Christians many times that almighty, sovereign God is with us. Notice what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. The one who is sovereign over all things, Jeremiah, is with you for deliverance. Do not be afraid of them. Look at verse 9. He touches his mouth. He puts his words in Jeremiah's mouth. That makes you think of Isaiah, where he meets the Lord, and this angel takes a coal and 
cleanses his mouth before he goes to preach. It makes you think of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is called to preach and he's told to eat a scroll before he then speaks out God's words. It's a prophetic call and God touches his mouth. and He says, Jeremiah, you're going to speak my words. If you keep reading down to verse 18 and 19, this is what you find out. God says to Jeremiah, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, the kings of Judah, the officials, the priests, the people of the land. All the people you're so scared of. I'm going to make you like a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls. Verse 19, they will fight against you. Don't think there won't be opposition. They will fight against you, but they will not prevail against you, for I am with you declares the Lord to deliver you. It's the sovereignty of God in his life. How do you explain the fact that this stammering, objecting, sighing, groaning, eye-rolling teenager, scared out of his wits, spent 40 years confronting the most wicked people in Judah and never backed down? Do you just come to the end of it and say, man, Jeremiah had grit. I wish I could be as tough as Jeremiah. No, Jeremiah has no grit. We don't call him the gritty prophet. We call him the weeping prophet. The reason he's able to stand for 40 years and declare the word of the Lord, even when he doesn't want to and he wants to stop and he feels this fire burning in his bones, is that the sovereign Lord is with him. He formed him. He knew him. He consecrated him. He gave him to this task. He said, don't be afraid. I will be with you to deliver you. And all of it, God is sovereign. Secondly, let's talk about the sovereignty of God over the nations. God was sovereign over the rise and fall of kingdoms. So Jeremiah is the micro level, one individual, but now we're talking globally, worldwide. God is sovereign. He's in control over the rise and the fall of kingdoms. Verse 5 says, Jeremiah, you'll be a prophet to the nations. When we get to the end of the book, chapter 46 to 51, Jeremiah starts talking to all the nations around Judah. It's almost as if he gets in the middle of the land in Jerusalem and he starts spinning around and he's talking to all these nations all around them. This is what God says to you. This is what God says to you. He's a prophet to the nations. Verse 10, here's his job as a prophet. God says, I have set you over nations and kingdoms. Why is God able to set Jeremiah over nations and kingdoms? It's because the Lord God is sovereign over those nations and over those kingdoms. And Jeremiah's job, verse 10, is to pluck up, break down, destroy, overthrow, build, and plant. Six things that he's called to do. That's the list. Pluck up, break down, destroy, overthrow. All negative. All those words have a negative connotation to his ministry. A lot of what Jeremiah had to say was not positive. It was not, here's how you can live your best life now. It was God is angry with you, and God is going to judge you and punish you. There was hope. There would be building, and there would be planting, but the majority of it would be negative. Those of you who have been coming on Wednesday nights or listening on the podcast, we've been talking about genres of 
Bible literature and how you interpret it. We talked about poetry recently. We talked about chiasms. I just want you to see there's a chiasm in this passage. And you can see the correspondence from verse or the first word down to the, the bottom word. Pluck up and plant. They go together. They're on the same line of meaning. They're both agricultural terms. The next level of meaning, break down and build, those are construction terms. And then in the middle, the heart of the chiasm where the emphasis usually lies, there is destroy and overthrow. Those are terms of warfare. Most of it's negative. Some of it's positive. And at the heart of it, there's the idea of war. Jeremiah is telling God's people over and over and over again, there is a nation that's going to march against you. They're not just coming from nowhere. God is sending them to punish you. It was a message that was largely negative, doom and gloom, Hellfire and brimstone. But there was hope. There was talk about building and planning. There was talk about a new covenant that would be inaugurated by God's chosen representative. In all of it, God is sovereign. He's in control of Jeremiah's life. He's in control of the nations in the kingdoms. What do we do with that? How do we begin to think about applying that to our lives? I don't think that you should expect to go home and reread Jeremiah and come back to me and say, I think I'm supposed to go to Judah and preach doom and gloom to those people and tell them that the Babylonians are coming to destroy them for their sin. That's not the call on your life. That was the call on Jeremiah's life. It's not the call on my life or your life. How do we apply God's sovereignty today. Let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, God is sovereign, not our inner sense of self. When Jeremiah started talking to the Lord, his inner sense of who he was as a person rubbed up against what God was telling him to do. He essentially is telling God, God, I don't really feel like doing this. I don't really feel like that's me. I think you've got a mix-up here. In the year 2021, you and I are bombarded daily through Disney movies, social media, popular culture, songs, evening sitcoms, through everything that we take in media-wise. We are bombarded with the idea that the most important thing about you is your inner sense of self and identity. And we are even being told today that not only should we live out whatever our inner sense of self and identity is, but even if we need to bring anatomy and biology into line with our inner sense of identity, that we should do that. Because the most important thing about you is your inner sense of who you are. And the Bible says that is a bunch of nonsense. It is wicked, it is godless, it is theological gobbledygook. It's ridiculous. And Jeremiah had to learn that lesson. Jeremiah, I know you don't want to do it. Jeremiah, I know you don't feel like you can do it. But the most important thing about Jeremiah was not how Jeremiah felt about Jeremiah. It's what the sovereign Lord God said about Jeremiah, the most important thing about you is not what you feel in your heart. I'll put a verse on the screen. I've got the reference wrong. It should be Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart, your inner self, the inward part of you, it's deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who in the world can understand it? 
The world may tell you to follow your heart. Jeremiah says, don't. Your heart's a liar. It's deceitful. You can't trust it. Here's what you can trust is the word of the sovereign Lord. And the most important thing about you is not how you feel about yourself, but it's what Almighty God says about you. God is sovereign, not our inner self. Secondly, God's presence is an empowering reality. It's empowering. Jeremiah was sustained for 40 years by this promise that the Lord would be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you, Jeremiah. Moses, we've mentioned, another prophet who pushed back on God's call on his life, who didn't want to do what God was sending him to do. Moses got to the point in his life where he needed this empowering reality. Remember after the people built the golden calf and the Lord was angry with Israel and the Lord said to Moses, after Moses prayed for the people, God forgave them, the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm going to send you, but I can't go with you. And Moses stopped dead in his tracks and he said, God, Lord God, if you don't go with us, we're not going. We can't go without you. We have got to have your presence. And the Lord listened to Moses and he went with the people. This is an empowering reality. This is a reality that came to its true final fruition in the Lord Jesus Christ who was Emmanuel. He was God with us. God come to live among us, to dwell among us. And when Jesus, Emmanuel, ascended back to heaven after the resurrection, he looked his disciples in the face and he said, I'm not leaving you. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age in the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'll come to you. I'll be with you. I'll empower you. This is an empowering reality. We have the sovereign presence of the Lord in our lives. Thirdly, God's calling should not be ignored. Do not ignore God's call on your life. Some of you, maybe you are actually this morning wrestling with a call to some sort of vocational ministry, missions. Don't ignore that. Some of you may be wrestling with a call to serve here in our local church, or maybe you're here visiting for a parent-child dedication and you have a local church somewhere else and you're wrestling with a call, I need to serve in my local church and do this. Do not ignore that call on your life. Parents and grandparents, whether you had family up here this morning or you didn't, you have been called to teach your kids the truth of the gospel, to drag them to church, to discipline them when they need it, and to set a godly example for them. Do not ignore the call of God on your life. Do not ignore it. Christian, you are called to be salt and light in a dark, decaying world. Do not ignore the call of the sovereign Lord. Fourth, God's sovereignty extends to our salvation. Praise God, this is true. God's sovereignty extends to our salvation. There's a couple of words in verse 10 that I think are interesting. Two of the things that Jeremiah is supposed to do are destroy and build. I've set you this day over nations, kingdoms, pluck up, break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build, and to plant. Those two words remind me of something Jesus said in the Gospel of John. I told you we weren't done with John. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. I'll rebuild it. And the people listening to him initially thought, well, what a joke. How are you going to destroy this 
building in these stones and rebuild it in three days. And John says he wasn't talking about building. He was talking about his body. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. You know, the Bible says that Jesus died for you while you were still a sinner. He took the initiative. He always takes the initiative. He's sovereign in laying down his life and in taking it back up again. He is sovereign in our salvation. That gives us great hope as his people. Last, God's sovereignty should move us to prayer. To prayer. You and I are not sovereign. We are not sovereign. The Lord God is. You and I have very, very limited abilities. Very limited. There's a lot of things we can't do. There's a lot of things we don't know. God is not limited in those ways. He knows everything and he can do anything. He is omnipotent and omniscient. He is sovereign over all things. If we really believe that, and we believe that he's with us to deliver his people, why would we not pray to him, talk to him about the things that we are not able to do? Things like raising children to love the Lord. You know that you can't change a child's heart. You know that you can't make a child follow Jesus as they grow up and get older. If you can't do it, why not talk to God about it? The Bible says that he can change hearts. He can take out a heart of stone and he can replace it with a heart of flesh. The Bible says that he can take those who are dead and he can raise them to life. Why would we not talk to God about those things. As a church family, you know you invite people, we go on mission trips, we share the gospel, we share with people in Odessa. You know you can't talk anybody into following Jesus. You don't have it in you. I don't have it in me. Well, why would we not talk to God about that? The Bible says that some people water and some people plant and some people get to bring in the harvest, but all of it, God is the one who gives the growth. He's sovereign over all of those things. Why would we not talk to him? about the people in our lives that we want to see saved. Say, God, we need you to do what only you can do and what we cannot do. We're dependent on you. That's what prayer is. It's expressing your dependence on God. And certainly when we think about God's sovereignty, it ought to in turn make us think about our dependency. We ought to be people who pray.